0: Okay, Uh, if you brought a Bible, you can open up with me if you'd like to read a story from Joshua, uh, the Old Testament book of Joshua. Uh, I think it's the sixth one: Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Joshua, chapter seven. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever uh, heard this story before, uh, but it's a a relatively familiar one, I think. Um, uh, It's about uh, the people of the Jewish people have been released from. Uh, Egyptian captivity. They have received the law and all of the instructions uh, at Mount Sinai. Uh, they have rebelled against God and been forced to wander for 40 years while the generation that was rebellious died out. And now they have entered the land followed by their great general, a guy by the name of Joshua. And as they do so, they encounter what a little bit more of what it means to be the people of God there. Well, at one point, they encounter the city of Ai, and uh, God tells them not to keep the spoils that they find in that city. Uh, it's all supposed to be going and directed to a different place. Uh, but one guy named Achan decides he's not going to do that. Uh, so starting in verse 18, uh, Joshua 7, verse 18 through 26. Yeah, I ought to get it. Okay. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, And two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them, and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent, and brought them to Joshua, and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore to this day the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. All right. Again, not your feel-good Bible uh, topic of the summer. Uh, But illustrative of the next and actually the last of our study in the seven deadly sins. We've been doing this study over really the doctrine of sin. And looking at that doctrine through the lens of this uh, rather historic way of looking at these sins through the eyes of the church. Tonight, we come to uh, what is known as gluttony. And uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting topic to, to jump into, mostly because it gives me a chance to read uh, some of my favorite quotes by a woman by the name of Anne Lamont. If you're not familiar with Anne Lamont, you might want to come and pick some of these up, ladies especially uh, she's a really unique and interesting woman who has struggled and battled addictions all of her life, uh, and yet works through some of that in trying to understand what her faith means in the midst of those uh, addictions. Well, one particular night, she goes on a food binge. Uh, she had been coming under the influence of a whole lot of stress in her lifetime uh, at this particular time of life. She had a friend who was dying of cancer, uh, she had had dental surgery. Uh, the war in Iraq was going on at this time. Uh, uh, you know, in her particular county where she lived, there was some breast cancer epidemic. Terrible time uh, uh, of, uh, of her life. And suddenly she snaps. <laughs> okay? Now again, I, this is kind of a long passage, but she writes very entertainingly, and so I thought you might enjoy some of this. <coughs> she says, All I could think to do was what every addict thinks of doing. Kill the pain. I don't smoke or drink anymore, and I'm too worried to gamble. I'm too guilty to shoplift, and I always have hated clothes shopping. So what other choices did I have? I could go on a strict diet, or, conversely, I could stuff myself to the rafters with fats, sugars, and carcinogens. Ding, ding, we have a winner. I got in the car and headed to Safeway for an apple fritter. A perfect apple fritter. In the classic tradition, A frisbee-sized patty of deep-fried dough, crisp and crunchy around the edges, doughy in the center, covered with a a sugar glaze. I used to eat fritters in mass quantities, as the coneheads would have enjoyed them, back when I binged and purged. Then, in early sobriety, I'd snack on them sometimes, because your body craves a replacement for all the sugar you once got in alcohol. So she ends up traveling to Safeway and heading straight over to the frozen food sections, Suddenly I realized they were out of fritters. In the history of Safeway, it has never once run out of apple fritters. So I understood instantly that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. I did not turn to donuts or bear claws or a Danish. I was not hungry for those. I had not been attacked by a random lust for just any old sugar and petroleum product. What did I do? I drove to another market. On the way over at the wheel, I said, It's not that big a deal. Anyone would understand if you binged every so often. I asked nicely, Now, who exactly is anyone again? Anyone. I knew this was true. Even Jesus would, although somehow I don't see him ripping open a passage of Hostess Ding Dongs for me. But thinking of Jesus reminded me that food would not fill the holes or quiet the fear. Only love would. I hate this. So she describes getting the apple, <laughs> the apple fritter and sort of methodically eating the toes off and then the, the gooey center in the middle plows through all three of these huge apple fritters and then a big box of Ben and Jerry's ice cream finally polished off by those small little Petridge Farm Milano cookies. <laughs> she goes crazy. And then she says this. I thought this was especially hilarious. She said, I was so lost. I couldn't follow the breadcrumbs back to the path of mental health because I'd eaten them all. So I ended up eating junk off and on until bedtime. I can hardly even describe how I felt when it was over. Like a manatee alone in an aquarium. (laughs) It's hard to remember that you are a cherished spiritual being when you are burping up apple fritters and Cheetos. Sometimes I think that when Jesus watches my neurotic struggles, he shakes his head and grips his forehead and starts tossing back mojitos. (laughs) Um, Look, uh, tonight we come to the topic of gluttony. Um, And for most of us, we tend to attach the struggle with gluttony uh, with food. But I want to try to broaden that... uh, that experience for you to really touch on some of the things that we see Anne Lamont given to us here. Uh, in many ways, gluttony is one of the hardest of the seven deadly sins to put a positive spin on. You know, you can kind of make the other sins uh, uh, sexy by uh, dressing them up, but not gluttony. This is the one that people tend to notice when you're dealing with that kind of excess. The Latin word comes from gula, which means waste or um, overindulgence. Uh, and in modern times, we, can, we tend to think of food and drink. But in the past, any form of thoughtless excess was defined as gluttony in the, to the ancients. In other words, gluttony can be any form of destructive behavior. Uh, it can be everything from substance abuse uh, to binge drinking. Uh, medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas said that gluttony is an inordinate desire to consume that leaves the order of reason. In other words, it's not reasonable the way in which people deal with gluttony. Um, and for this reason, gluttony can be a whole lot more than just a personal problem. Uh, it's a cultural problem, too. I remember distinctly people being very curious after 9-11 happened uh, as to why. You know, why in the world do the people in other cultures and other countries hate us so badly in America? And the answer, in part, I think, is that they view us as being mindless, consumption-driven people. That we're those who are driven by a disproportionate uh, uh, consumption of the world's material and natural resources, are consumed by Americans. We are an excessive people who are addicted to convenience. Uh, Addicted, as one author said, to more. That's who we are as a people. So what I want to do, though, is try to get a grasp uh, uh, at gluttony from a little bit of a more personal level. So again, in the way in which we've done almost all of these things, I want to look, first of all, at the definition of gluttony. We want to look at the anatomy of gluttony. And then finally, the cure uh, for gluttony as we finish out this thing. Okay, first of all, the definition of gluttony. Look, in our story, we have a guy by the name of Achan uh, who was confronted with his crime. And the interesting thing is when he's confronted with it, he actually admits to it. And then suddenly he and his family are stoned. <laughs> did that strike you as a little weird when we were reading through the story? It's like, well, I mean, he owned up to it. Um, why in the world did the guy get dragged out and stoned for something that he, I don't know, he said he was sorry, he admitted to it? Well, you got to know the background to this because God had actually told the people, the Jews here, that as they went into to possess the promised land, Uh, when they were met with resistance from these cities and from these fortifications, they were were given strict orders not to act like every other nation. The nation that follows me, uh, uh, God was saying, is not going to be driven by personal gain. This cannot be something that looks as if you're at it for you. Because it's not for you, it's for my glory. And so any wealth or property was to go to help build the worship place for the people of God. That's where it was all supposed to go. Uh, uh, And so therefore, God had made it a capital offense to actually become like the nations around them if he was going to establish his people there. But notice that when Achan finally gets caught, he doesn't protest at all. He doesn't offer any excuses he doesn't stand up and scream, wait a minute, you can't do this to me. You're acting in an unjust way. Achan knew what he did. He knew what he did was a crime and he knew what the punishment was if he ever got caught doing it. And yet he did it anyway. Now, you got to let that kind of settle in a little bit to see the real grip of what this is. Gluttony is the definition in many ways, transcends all logic. You know that you're struggling with gluttony when your behavior contradicts what you reasonably know you ought to do. That is, you can have a rational part of your brain that says, I'm not going to do that. I know what the consequences are. I'm staying away from that. But here we go. Gluttony has a way of moving you past your fear of punishment, of what will happen if you do it, or even your uh, desire for self-preservation, right? You know, social scientists will say that one of our most basic instincts as human beings is self-preservation. You know, Freud even saw self-preservation as the driving influence in your life. Uh, But here, you begin to see that gluttony has the power to even cause us to trump our own self-preservation. We will be driven by these things even when we know they're bad for us. Extraordinary. Aiken simply did not care. There's a great quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you ever either saw the movie or read the book as a child perhaps, where young Edmund gets his first taste of Turkish delight from the White Witch. You remember this moment in the stories where he climbs up there and the candy is just so delicious and so good and so warm? And then finally, the the commentator says this, uh, The witch knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight. And that anyone who tasted it would want more and more of it. And would even, if they were allowed, to go on eating it until they killed themselves. Y'all, that's a great picture from the White Witch of gluttony and how it works on us. That even gluttony builds a craving so deep inside of you that you'll even find a way to your own suicide in the process. To my own harm. Um, You know, I remember a number of years ago uh, having somebody bring out to me the fact that you can see the face of gluttony in these NBC specials to catch a predator. You're lying if you haven't ever watched this, okay? The guy comes in and they do this sort of um, sting operation to catch uh, child... um, What would you call this? Um, What do you call it? Um, Sexual predators who are going after underage uh, uh, people that they met over the Internet. And you you can watch with you know a great amount of discomfort if you have a soul you know, these people come walking in and get confronted by the guy you know and you sit there and you're just kind of like oh they are just busted and now they're on television for goodness sakes but you look inside that face so often and you see the face of gluttony because you see someone who knows people who admit most of the people that I, heard interviewed, you know, the, half of them would make excuses, but the other half would look and go, yeah, this is the worst thing I've ever done. This is terrible. I've got a terrible problem. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know what I'm doing here. I'm crazy. Trying to grasp at something. Gluttony turns you on those kinds of things. Um, you know, in many ways, we... But using an illustration like that, in my opinion, makes it a little too easy for us because we can distance ourselves from those things. At least, I think we can distance ourselves from some of those things. Maybe not. Um, Those examples are more notorious, but the truth is, every one of us lives with an inordinate desire for things. Oh, there's something out there. (laughs) We may not have gotten to it, but every one of us have some kind of uh, predisposition, predilection toward particular kinds of craving. We all have, very hardwired in all of us, a disposition toward a craving that leads us to gluttony. And if perhaps you haven't gone to obsessive marks of being caught and put on television or something, um, but you all have the seeds. It's all there. In other words, it may not have grown up to something that's embarrassing in a public way, but it's not for lack of talent, because it's inside us all to lock onto these kinds of things. Look, the next time that you're depressed, <laughs> the next time that you're in a rage, or the next next time that you're terrified. When all of those emotions well up, stop for a moment and look at yourself. Because what you're going to find is that there's something in your life that you want immoderately. Does that make sense? It's an over desire. And quite often it's for something that's a good thing in and of itself. It can be a career, it can be a dating or marriage relationship, it can be food or drink things given as good gifts to God uh, for God's people to be used but what happens is we take those things and moderation goes out the door and we find ourselves not wanting it but needing it and suddenly we become a slave to that thing it controls who we are we don't control it in that but it'll typically happen in those moments where you feel that emotion coming up you know you know it's not that you're, you you may not have made it to desperate fear but you're worried you may not be completely depressed, but you're still struggling with disappointment. You may not be in a total rage, but you've still got that little bit of annoyance. That's the seed of gluttony, and it's the seed of slavery for everyone that enters into it. Okay, so that's our definition. Secondly, notice, though, the anatomy of gluttony, how this whole thing sort of plays out, or what we might say the process of gluttony. In Achan, we see three things in his description that you can tell help lead you away to this. Number one, first what he says. The first thing is, is he says he saw. Look at verse 21. I looked and I saw this plunder uh, where it was. Now look, that Hebrew word there is not like, uh, you know, I focused my eyeballs on this thing and took in the data. It's not what it means. The word saw there in that Hebrew means to behold. It means to sort of take it in. Uh, it means to gaze upon. Does that make sense? In other words, it means to study it in a very meticulous manner. I began to look at it and started to see it's more than just um, uh, a, a thing. It now is something that is delightful. The problem comes when we move from noticing into gazing. Because suddenly there's an element there of attraction. It's calling us. It's drawing us in. It's calling it to, to ourselves. And suddenly we're open to that craving being born. Okay, so notice what the second thing is. starts with seeing. The second thing is, is, he weighs what he sees. Look at verse 21 again. He goes, he says, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, and he's got these 200 shekels of silver and, and a gold brick that weighs, you know, what, uh, 50 shekels or so? Look, it wasn't just that he was seeing the thing, he began to study them. Literally, the, the, his word he uses is that he weighed them. I don't know how he did that, whether he had weights and measures or whatnot, but the guy had done his homework on this stuff. He had spent some time mulling over this, uh, plowing through it, getting to know it in a long, extended way. It's really interesting to me that that word to weigh comes from a Hebrew root word that means to give glory to something. When we give glory to something, we give it weight we give it significance. To glorify something means to grant it weight in your own life by giving it importance in your own life. It means that it becomes fascinating. Um, you know, we're, we're looking for something that has weight or weightiness. You and I talk about having weighty issues in life. What do we mean? We're talking about things that matter, that have significance to us, that we believe will have permanence. That, my friends, is step two to gluttony. Because Achan's weighing of the gold was an act of significance. He was granting the thing importance in his life. Um, In other words, the possessions that he had were more than just objects. They suddenly began to serve something inside of him. He knew that taking the gold would be dishonoring to God. He knew that, but he did it anyway. Now, do you want to know why? Why? Because Achan had traded his worship of God, his glorifying of God, he had ceased to find him fascinating and found this other thing fascinating. I want you lock on to lock onto that for just a second because there's something very powerful in that because it brings us to uh, number, step number three of gluttony. It starts with seeing. It secondly moves into mulling over or studying or beholding or giving weight to. And thirdly, it turns into coveting. He says here in verse 21, I coveted them. The root of gluttony in the Bible's terminology is covetousness. The sin of not being satisfied with what God has given you at this stage in your life and at this time. Dissatisfaction, a lack of contentment is the final sort of flowering of of coveting. And coveting is the ultimate description of gluttony. And then he looks and he says that I went and I took it. And suddenly in the taking, he crosses over a platform. Y'all, there's something very powerful about having something that's at a distance, that's remained, let's say, in the level of seeing and studying. But there's something powerful when covetousness takes over and you actually do the thing. For a lot of us, we, we, we twist Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, hey, same thing. You know, if you lust after a woman, same thing as adultery. In our twisted minds, we look and say, well, if I've already lusted, why not go ahead and do the deed? Well, the gluttony is one of the answers to that question because it looks and says beware of taking those next steps because each step makes it harder to work away from finding that thing to have been meaningful to you. That is the process of gluttony, secondly. Now, what I hope, now that we're to the third point of the cure for gluttony, is that I've set you up for the answer. Again, I've completely stolen uh, and robbed Tom Cannon-Blind on this, pastor in Red Mountain in Birmingham, and he reminded me of a great... uh, uh, a piece of teaching that comes out of one of the old uh, great reformers of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin. Now, I doubt that many of you will hear John Calvin's name spoken of in any positive light uh, in your classes, uh, but I- I'll say that you know, he's actually not a bad guy in the grand scheme of things. His most important book is a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. The very first opening <clears throat> paragraph of that rather large, big work says this, all knowledge consists of two things, knowledge of yourself and knowledge of God. In those two things we find the the seedbed of real, true knowledge. And as it turns out, it also patterns for us the cure for gluttony. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Step number one is you have to have a knowledge of yourself. You begin to erode your gluttony. And I've said this every single week. It's that recurring theme that's really been driven home to me. Is you have to have an accurate self-knowledge. We begin to deal with gluttony when someone comes in and looks at you and says, I love you enough to say that you are a drunk. There's no other way to describe your obsession with this relationship uh, than just that, obsession. The truth of the matter is, you deal with food the way a person does when they're angry. You seem mad every time you deal with that. Um, you tend to uh, uh, look at your family through the eyes of fear. In other words, do you have someone in your life who loves you enough or should we say, you have opened the doors, spiritually speaking, enough to grant them access into your life. Who can say that kind of stuff to you? Because unless we get accurate self-knowledge, there's no way we can defeat gluttony. Gluttony by its nature is enslaving us. And what else can slavery be? What, what more profound version of slavery can there be when we suddenly see that our slavery is driven, uh, that we don't even notice that we're slaves. That's the profound amount of slavery when we don't even see it. Do you have people in your life who love you enough to call your attention to say, look, I love you enough to say that I think you're depressed. You may need to go talk to somebody. Look, those kinds of people in your life are the way in which we get accurate self-knowledge. But I'll say this, I think it's worthwhile even doing some self-examination. Archbishop Temple was the one who said that your religion is what you do with your solitude. You've heard me say this before, that one of the ways in which we know what we're really worshiping is watching where it is our mind drifts to when we're not putting effort to think about something. To what does your mind drift when you have nothing else to think about? Because that is what you're worshiping. And uncovering that can go a long way to unpacking the lies that gluttony holds out to us. So the first thing in defeating and getting a cure for gluttony is being honest with ourselves and saying, I am powerless over this thing. That's the first of the 12 steps for any of you who've ever been through an addiction program. The first of the 12 steps is, I acknowledge and admit that I am powerless over my addiction. Every person who goes through AA has got to stand up and say that. If you've never been to an AA meeting, you ought to do this. One of the first things you have to do at AA is stand up and say, Hi, my name is Les Newsom, and I'm an alcoholic. You have to verbalize who it is that you are. Because if you don't get a chance to say that, they know you're not being honest. And if you're not being honest, you're not being humble. And if you're not being humble, there's no room for change. It's pride that will allow gluttony to flourish. That's the first thing, knowledge of self. But secondly, y'all, it's got to be knowledge of God look, we have to have knowledge of God, but this knowledge is of a peculiar kind, That I am constantly surprised at how little I am willing to think about it and acknowledge it, and certainly how unwilling Christians are to think about it. Because it's not enough. you got to grasp this, y'all. It is not enough to tell yourself to stop craving. It will not work for you to stand there and say, oh, don't do this. Stop gazing at that. You know, just put the drink down. Tonight, I'm just stopping it too. Y'all hold me accountable. It's not going to happen. It never works that way. There was a, an old dead dude, Scottish theologian named Thomas Chalmers, a great, remarkable theologian, politician, social reformer, mathematician as well, just brilliant guy. Uh, One of his most famous essays was an essay entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You've heard me quote from this before. I did this last year in our study through Luke. But in this thing, he looks and says that the only way that you're ever going to be released, that you're ever going to be able to release your soul from the power of a beautiful object, from the power of something that has cast its spell over you, is to distract it with a more beautiful object. Oh, y'all, please hear this. Because in many ways, this is the key, this is the linchpin, in my opinion, of what the word reformed means. And in many ways, the only thing that I have to say to you during your tenure here at Old Miss, it's right here, right now, to look and say, I just want to take this thing away is not enough. To look and say, oh, I'm just going to stay off those porn sites, doggone it, to look and to say, you know what? I, you, you know. Have you ever had a friend look at you and say, well, the truth is, you just need to get over him. Just get over him. You ever look at somebody and be like, oh, thanks. <laughs> Never thought of that. Just get over him. I'll go do that this afternoon. I've got some time, right? It's not enough to look at someone and say, you know, you've got to stop smoking weed. You know, it, This is making you depressed. It's not enough to do that. Um, that's to invite failure. Here's what Chalmers says. Chalmers says, when bidden as he is, that's the Christian, in the New Testament to to love not the world, no, nor any of the things that are in the world, for this so comprehends all that is dear to him in existence as to be equivalent to a command of self-annihilation. In other words, if if you look at yourself and say, okay, I'm just not going to do that, that feels like a death because the thing that you're looking at that has created your addiction looks that attractive. You're a glutton for it. You're addicted to it. You over-desire desire it. Look, this is the point. There is an apparatus in your soul, a faculty, if you will, that attributes weight to things. You are an inborn glorifier. You, but you are a worshiper. Willy-nilly. Whatever you can grasp, whatever you can get at that will bring you satisfaction and joy, so you believe, you will lock onto with a tenacity that's, that's giant. And so the writer of Hebrews gives you this advice. He says, look, let us lay, also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we read verses like that. We're like, yeah, that's what we'll do. <laughs> we'll run with endurance. Hey, let's try harder next time, okay? And you come to RUF or to church or Bible study to get a great big finger wagging at you, to threaten you to do it better next time. How long does that last? For most of us, it doesn't last until we get home that night. But see, what the the writer of Hebrews says, in the very next thing, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking, read, gazing, beholding, being fascinated with, being curious about, to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's amazing. How did Jesus do the cross? You know He didn't want to, don't you? A lot of people don't get this. Jesus was God, so He wanted to do everything right. Well, not according to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was like, Lord, is there some way in which we don't have to do it like this? He asked for that. He didn't want to go to the cross, and yet He did. Why? What was it that did it for Him? Joy. But for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Look, for many of you, I could, well, I'm going to lump myself in with you. We as an RUF group at Old Miss are not holy. There, I said it. right Actually, that's what this whole topic this fall is going to be about. We are not holy. And I'm convinced that the reason that we are not holy is not because we're not trying hard enough. That's not the reason. We're not holy because we are still yawning when we look to Jesus. And the reason why we yawn when we look to Him is because we feel like He is just tolerating us. You ever thought about that? (laughs) What is Jesus' relationship to you? For the large majority of us, we are so glutted, an interesting choice of words, gluttony, we are so clogged with a sense of guilt over our failures that we have this image of Jesus who's standing up there just sort of being like, okay, fine, I'll let you in one more time. And the truth of the matter is, we don't follow Him because we take no joy in Him. Look, I'll finish with this. I had a, a, a there, there, the president of, uh, of Covenant Theological Seminary was our speaker at um, uh, Fall Conference last year for RUF up in Memphis. Some of you went to go see that. Uh, Dr. Brian Chappell told an illustration years ago that I've never forgotten about him getting the door to his office fixed. He's the president of the seminary. Presumably he's got a fairly nice office, but his door had a problem. It kept sticking. And so he got a guy in who was in there working on it, and all he did was take the door off of the hinges and use one of those little um, uh, planers. You know what a planer is? It's that little block that's got a little blade on it that'll sort of shave off any wood that's sticking up on wood. It's kind of a cool little thing. I remember as a kid watching them because it makes these cool little wooden curlicues under it. Well, you know, Brian was sitting there trying to do his work and kind of watching this guy do that with the you know, with the, the planer. And, you know, he just kind of wondered out loud. He just thought it was kind of neat, and he said, you yeah, that's kind of neat. I'm watching the little curly cues come up. And this old sort of gnarled carpenter looks over and goes, not when you've been doing it for 35 years, it's not. Of course, Brian was like, ah, okay, sorry. <laughs> Get along with your work, never mind. And he said, afterwards, it was very interesting that the door still stuck. And he said, because this is the point. The work that you take no joy in is hard to do well. Look, the work that you set your hand to do, not that you take no joy in, but in knowing that no one takes joy in you while you do it, is very hard to do well. And to be honest with you, the only way we erode our gluttony is by filling ourselves with the fact that He has desired me. That, by the way, is what's hinted at that passage. you know what the joy set before Jesus was that helped Him endure the cross? You. (laughs) We were the joy set before Him that sent Him to the cross just so I could have you happy and holy and with me.